because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Don Watkins and Stefan Stephan Henna took over last week, and they are here today, but they're joined by me. Hey, Don. Hey, Stefan. Hey, Alex. Hey. So let's jump right into the stories. Although I guess before we go into the stories, I should say that there's a new video this week that I did, and it's called What's the Deal with the Green New Deal? It's released and produced by Prager University. And as I'm speaking, it has over 200,000 views in about a day on the internet. And I hope that listeners check it out and spread it. It's about five and a half minutes long. And uh, I worked hard to to put as much good content in that five and a half minutes as possible so that you could share it with people, particularly people who are thinking about energy issues in the uh, elections next year. So check that out. Uh, just search Alex Epstein Green New Deal. Probably the best place to do it is YouTube and you will find it. Okay, Don, what is the first story you want to talk about today? Well, the Green New Deal had kind of shoved the carbon tax off the agenda for a while, but now that's starting to change. Members of Congress on both sides of the aisle are introducing competing bills in order to put a carbon tax on the United States. Senator Christopher Coons wrote, Representative Francis Rooney, who's a Republican, and Representative Dan Lipinski have all introduced carbon tax bills over the last week. And those are, uh, they're actually joining two other bipartisan measures that were proposed earlier in this year in the House and the Senate. But one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this is that as Republicans are becoming more supportive of a carbon tax internally, we've actually become more opposed in the last few months. And in previous episodes of Power Hour, we've spoken about the our fundamental objection that when you're making energy more expensive, you're depriving us of all the benefits of affordable energy, including all of the productive achievements and job creation that would have happened absent those higher energy prices. But I wanted to raise at least one new point, um, new to me anyway, and Alex, if there's any additional things you want to bring up, that would be great. But one of the arguments, particularly conservatives who support it, will raise is that a carbon tax will allegedly encourage innovation in energy. You know, there'll be an incentive for clean energies to come along once we start making hydrocarbons pay for the alleged, you know, full impact that they have on society. But it's actually anti-innovation because what a carbon tax is really doing is it lo it lowers the incentive to develop affordable energy sources. So like imagine we said let's put a 100% tax on gasoline powered cars and this will encourage us to shift to battery cars. Well it's certainly not going to encourage battery car makers to be able to um make their cars affordable, it'll be exactly the opposite because they no longer have an incentive to bother trying to drive down prices since affordable cars have basically been banned. And so if you want carbon-free energy to become cheap, which would be wonderful, I mean, the worst thing in the world you could do was to make today's cheap energy from fossil fuels expensive. I mean, one example that has that I, I've read that I think is a, a good example and and the whole article is worth reading. There's a good article by a guy named Oren Cass called The Carbon Tax Shell Game, which I highly recommend. It really breaks down the issue. 
better than any, anything else I've seen. And one point he makes is that Europe already has a huge equivalent of a carbon tax. If you look at gasoline, you know, the gasoline prices in Europe or diesel prices in Europe, they're something like twice what we pay in the US. And there hasn't been some amazing revolution there. One thing this, this points to is that fossil fuels for most purposes, including, you know, most purposes and including most people, is by far the lowest cost way of producing the power that people want. So you just think about producing electricity in China, producing power for a, a harvester, uh, producing power for an airplane. There's just There's just this huge gap between what people have figured out how to do efficiently and profitably using hydrocarbons or fossil fuels and then what they figured out to do or haven't figured out to do with other things. So there's just these these huge, huge gaps and people are trying to act like, oh, well, if we just pass this little tax, then, oh, well, then we'll switch over to the other thing. But there has to be a recognition that the reason that fossil fuels are, are overwhelmingly the world's source of energy, the reason that they're the fastest growing source of energy is because most of the time, for most purposes, they are by far the cheapest, if not the only way to generate the power that people want. And so if that's not acknowledged, then people just, they just propose all these things. And then in practice, what happens is these things just, you know, they make fossil fuels more expensive, but people still use fossil fuels. And we should really appreciate that people using fossil fuels, I mean, different kinds of forms of producing power using fossil fuels, There, it's really remarkable how low cost they can give us power for. And that enables us to have power in every aspect of life. And that's a great thing. And we're, we're used to it and we take it for granted, but it's really an amazing thing that for any activity in the world we want to do, there's a, a low cost way to use machines, uh, including uh, low-cost power, to do it. And that's just that's just something that is, it's just, it's not at all something to assume, oh, well, somebody else can just do it some other way just as cheaply. Like sometimes there's this view that, oh, well, we're just going to get other technologies at the same cost as fossil fuels. But I mean, what makes you think that you can do that? I mean, what makes you think it's possible on a given time scale. It, it may not be possible on a given time scale for many, many energy purposes. It's not like what fossil fuels cost is just some prescribed amount that every technology can theoretically equal. No, it's that this tech, like the best technology, it's what the best technology has achieved. So maybe the best technology can achieve more. That's definitely possible. Or maybe there's a transformative technology, probably involving nuclear, that can do even better at some point. But but what we've achieved with fossil fuels in terms of like universal low cost power there's just there's just uh nothing like it and and all of these discussions around carbon tax and everything else are trying to evade that and they're trying to act like there's a way to restrict fossil fuel power that doesn't involve a huge uh disempowering of the world and right now there is no such thing and the closest thing uh, over the coming decades would probably be to decriminalize nuclear, and they don't even want to do that. Stefan, what's your first story? 
Well, July 29th was Earth Overshoot Day, uh, at least uh, according to the what I call Neo-Malthusian Organization Global Footprint Network. And since the 1980s, they are calculating how much of the Earth natural resources humanity uh, sort of uses each year. And um, according to them, we are right now using 1.75 Earth every year in terms of resource um, consumption. And so the way they do this is... What do, they, what do they qualify as a re, as a natural resource? Yeah, so they, they are looking up something like uh, forest regrowth and uh, soil health and biodiversity and so on. And, and they are making uh, sort of this index um, with what they call an ecological footprint. So they calculate how much humans are consuming in terms of quote-unquote natural resources and uh, the details are, are a bit complex but so they are then comparing that to how much we use and then they have uh, as a result that we are overusing the planet as such and um, so as I said they, they are indicating that we are using too much of the world's force we are deforest, uh, deforesting the planet and the soil erosion problem it gets worse and worse and we lose a lot of biodiversity and of course we emit too much co2 into the atmosphere which is also then um, more than the the natural systems can compensate for in terms of co2 sinks like forests for example and uh, so this is this is they do this every year and uh, every year this day moves a little uh further to January 1st, of course, because we're using more and more resources of the, on the planet. And uh, so former power Our guest Mike Schellenberger from Environmental Progress has an interesting Forbes article on this where he sort of debunks uh, this metric of the ecological footprint on its own battlefield. So he, he has a paper out from 2013, I believe, where he actually shows that, you know, hey, the forests are getting healthier and the soil quality is getting better. And so, so we've solved a lot of the alleged problems that we run into with this. And uh, so my take is, yeah, that's true. And it's important to make these points. But you can also see this uh, in a very empirical way because the Global Footprint Network asserts that richer nations are consuming resources at a higher rate. So, for example, an American will um, sort of uh, reach the Earth Overshoot Day much earlier in the in the year than someone living in Cuba, for example, right? And so we know empirically that it's the poor nations that rely on something like wood for energy uh, that run into problems with uh, environmental degradation. They are consuming like a local limited resource like forests or you know, uh, fresh water and so on. And then they have big problems. But in developed nations, actually, we are sort of solving the problems along the way. So we create far more uh, fresh water than we need and we create far more healthier soils and we can, you know, shrink the uh, acreage used to feed our populations and so on. So we are sort of solving this. And yeah, that's that's an important point to make, of course, it's so it's sort of debunked. But I think it's important to also stress uh, why these Neo-Malthusians always get this resource issue wrong. And this is what 
Well, the reason is because most people get resources wrong. And so they, we see this, or most people see this as sort of there's a given a resource stockpile that nature provides us and it regrows it at a certain rate. And that is sort of a God-given, you know, metaphysical fact. And we can change us. We can just take care that we don't overuse it. And this is, of course, a totally wrong uh, view, as Alex stated in, in his book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. We are actually resource creators as humans, at least at a high energy technological civilization. So if you think about certain certain types of resources like aluminum or genetically modified organisms that we use in modern agriculture, these were not uh, in existence, you know, before the modern era. And so we are creating these technologies and these resources that actually enable us to live independent of these natural cycles of replenishment. So if you think of a primitive society that lives off agricultural land, yeah, if they exhaust their, their soils or if they have a, a problem with using too much water then it's replenished naturally, they run into problems. But a modern technological society will create more and more resource abundance uh, by artificial means. So uh, the reason why we are richer and more productive and can actually choose to whether we want to keep a forest area or turn it into an agricultural era, even uh, area, even if we have uh, an increasing population, we can actually we can, we do this because we become more productive with better technology. And I think this uh, this particular ideology portraying humans as these parasites, uh, you know, destroying nature by their living, by their lifestyles is a very dangerous thing because this is a one, one, one of the few things that could actually destroy humanity, right? Because when we restrict our resource use and we, we stagnate and stop making progress and stop ma- making technology better and more productive, we could actually stagnate to the point where we, where we run out of options. We are doing the same things over and over again, like the renewable ideal, the green ideal would tell us we're doing the same things over and over and we stagnate and we don't grow and don't make things better. And then ultimately we might run into problems like an animal that doesn't have a strategic mindset and cannot adapt to changing conditions out of a sudden. And then we have no option. We, we, we don't have the technology to do things differently if we need to. So this is, this is actually a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy to me where if we follow the leadership of these Methuselian green thinkers, we would actually, you know, destroy ourselves by some resource problem that we otherwise wouldn't have. I think it's it's interesting to think about what would happen if we had had the global footprint network giving us guidance in previous eras. So imagine during the Iron Age, when they're just figuring out how to get iron and how to use it. And they say, well, you know, by our current knowledge of iron, this is completely unsustainable. Like we're going to run out of iron at some point. And and part of it is when you're starting to develop something, you don't know much about it. And at any given stage, you know less than you'll know in the future. So what they're basically saying is that at any 
with with basically no new technology, are you going to somehow know, oh, well, we can somehow do this indefinitely in the future forever and every element of it we can do forever in the future. If you have this idea of, of repetitiveness or repeatability, then you're just not going to do anything. And that's that's what they're basically saying with new technologies. And you could certainly apply this to solar and wind and the materials in there and just say, yeah, we can't keep doing this because we're going to run out of uh, X, Y, or Z. Or, you know, what you'll end up doing is you'll end up using just primitive technologies that are in what, and this is what they want. I mean, they want us to use primitive technology and then they want there to be very few of us. And yeah, at a certain point, if there are very few of us and we don't consume much, then yeah, we can live like animals, which is the the idea here. So the idea is that humans are animals. And so they judge it as, well, we're just doing these behaviors. And if if we project these behaviors repeating in the future, and then that wouldn't be able to work indefinitely, then those behaviors are wrong now versus the mindset that no, any given group of people should be plant should be consuming according to what's best for them now and then in the relevant future. And then part of that is when people are free, then they can either use the methods that people were using 10 years ago, or they can, they can use uh, new methods. And almost always those methods are better, but it may be the case that, well, for certain things, uh, the older methods were better, but there was a limited supply. Like the people who used a lot of bat guano for fertilizer. I mean, maybe that was better in some ways than modern synthetic fertilizer, but still they had a right to use that. And I think every generation has a right to use the world around them in the way that's that they think is best for their lives. And then they leave the next generation a whole bunch of knowledge and a whole bunch of wealth that then the next generation can either repeat some of the old ways or use uh, new ways. And And that kind of progressive way of life has just been amazing. But it really is the kind of thing where people need to understand what it means to be a human because if they have this idea of we want to repeat everything and we want to be sustainable in the sense of repeatable, then it, as Stefan mentioned, it can lead to just stagnation and it can lead to the restriction of the freedom to develop and use uh, the earth. And then if, if you don't, if you don't have the freedom to develop the earth, then you really start running out of things. Don, what's your next story? In September, New York is going to host the most high-profile summit on climate since the 2015 UN conference that led to the Paris Agreement. And already the conference or the summit is making headlines. And in this case, it's making headlines because Greta Thunberg, the 16-year-old Swedish climate activist, has announced that she's going to cross the Atlantic Ocean in August with a two-week trip in an open cockpit racing yacht to attend the meeting. And the reason she's doing this is because she doesn't fly because of the greenhouse gases from air travel. And I actually find this stunt really revealing. And I mean, first of all, like we have to keep in mind that this boat was made with fossil fuels. Like everything about it was made possible and manufactured and made affordable by fossil fuels. Um, the second is the boat is actually completely unsafe to use without fossil fuels. So the, the New, York, New York Times points out that although it's outfitted with solar panels and underwater turbines to generate electricity, uh, safety rules require that these kinds of boats have motors and generators aboard in case of trouble, like a broken rudder near the shore. And 
the team keeps them sealed and only for emergencies. But I mean, it's, I think it's revealing that, you know, in an emergency, it's only fossil fuels that they can rely on to save them. But even if you set that aside, if you read about like what this boat trip will entail, uh, the Times points out there's no kitchen, refrigeration system, air conditioning, or showers. The guy whose boat it is said, there's really zero comfort on this boat. For two weeks, um, Thunberg will eat mostly freeze-dried and vacuum-packed meals, and that the crossing will involve choppy waters or worse. And of course, none of this would be able, you, you couldn't supply fast, affordable, safe, scalable travel this way. And so, I mean, my take on this is Thunberg is showing the world just how miserable she wants to make it. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a good illustration because even when even when there's so much reliance on fossil fuels for the manufacturer and for even the materials and for the backup, even then, uh, the experience is unbelievably expensive and uh, unbelievably low quality. So you think about you think about what it means to have a you know, a superior, a competitive product on the market. It's you figure out, I, I can make a profit by producing something really valuable at a, a really low cost. So then people will, will buy it because it, it, the, they get a lot of value for, in their view, very, you know, relatively low money. And then you, you, um, you figure out how to produce it for even less than they're willing to pay for it. And so you just always have this this tendency, you know, when you're out competing things, it's always, you're looking for how do I have the same or better result at the same or lower price? And then you think about what the result of traveling across the Atlantic is. It's, I'll just give my own perspective. I mean, my perspective for traveling across the Atlantic, particularly on business, is I want to be able to do it in a way that is is cheap, so it doesn't cost me that much. It doesn't cost me that much in terms of money, but even more important, it doesn't cost me that much in terms of time. Uh, and then even during the time that it takes, part of the quality is that I have access to things like the internet and digital technology and whatnot. And so this is just saying, I mean, just imagine with our, our business, you know, part of our business is, is speaking. And then somebody says to me, hey, I've got a speaking engagement for you, but you're not going to be able to work for two weeks because you're going to have to go on this boat and you know, you might have the battery that you came in with and you're not going to be accessible. And Oh, by the way, instead of getting paid to speak, we're going to deduct this travel fee and we need, we need to pay all of these people's livelihoods uh, to take you. So actually it's going to cost fill in the number, right? But like tens of thousands of dollars or uh, whatever it is. And then also, of course, you have to pay off the cost of this, a uh, very expensive, uh, eco-friendly boat. So it's just, it's basically just, you're getting an experience of very uncomfortable travel, incredibly unproductive travel that takes a huge amount of time and costs an incredible amount of money. And so the only reason that she can do this is that she's in a fossil fueled civilization. And so for one person to be a parasite to do this kind of stunt, uh, in a sense, other people can afford it. But I even wonder who's paying for it. So I, I agree. This is a, this is a perfect illustration of how the world that they talk about building, A, they can't even build it without fossil fuels and, and B, more importantly, it is a world that is not, not an enjoyable place to live in. And, and for, 
for most people, not a possible place to live in, in the sense that if, if everyone tried to live this way and we were forced to try to live this way, then uh, a lot of people would have much shorter lives. Stefan, what's your next story? Michigan fights its energy suppliers. So there's a Canadian energy transportation company named Enbridge, and they are struggling to update its Line 5 pipeline that transport light, crude, and natural gas liquids through Michigan. And um, so this pipeline is crossing the Straits of McKinnock, which connects Lake Michigan and Lake Huron. And uh, this is a, sort of the uh, point where the government of a newly elected governor um, disagrees with the pipeline company. So this pipeline is over 60 years old and the, com the company uh, is planning to build a tunnel under the Straits of Mechanic. And this plan was so to improve safety and update the pipeline. And this plan was actually approved by the Michigan legislature and the outgoing Republican governor, Rick Snyder, in 2018. And it's now in jeopardy because the newly elected Democratic governor, Gretchen Whitmer, uh, has made it a campaign issue to stop this kind of pipeline thing going through her uh, state. And uh, she wants now to shut down the ex existing pipeline within two years. And this is too short a, a time to complete the replacing update. And so this is a 645-mile pipeline that supplies over 50% of Michigan's propane needs. And uh, it has never leaked in its history, even though it's uh, over 60 years, as I said. So, um, and this is now going to the courts because Enrich said, okay, we can, we can do this. We can supply Michigan with propane and we can update this. Uh, and we were promised that this deal is done. Um, but they said, we, we prefer an agreement outside the courts, of course, because who wants to fight the government, right? And uh, so... Two Democratic presidential runners, Jay Inslee and Bernie Sanders, took the opportunity to call for a shutdown of this pipeline for good. And uh, Senator Sanders um, just recently uh, took the opportunity at a quote-unquote anniversary of one of the largest inland spills in U.S. history of oil, which is a Kalamazoo River oil spill. And this is also connected to Enbridge because this is a different pipeline by Enbridge. And uh, to my knowledge, I tried to search around a little bit. This, Although this was over a million gallons spill into a river, uh, nobody got uh, killed or injured uh, or something. And they uh, cleaned up this spill uh, in about five years and were fined over $177 million and had to pay for all of the cleanup work. So essentially uh, maybe a bit of wildlife suffered and uh, Bernie Sanders got a talking point for his campaign trail, but nothing, nothing more happened from this, you know, largest spill in U.S. history. Uh, so, and this pipeline seems to be much safer in, in this pipeline in question. But Bernie Sanders uh, went to Twitter and said, today with the climate crisis worsening, we must shut down line five pipeline in Michigan and ban all new fossil fuel infrastructure. So he's not even particularly concerned about the safety allegedly, uh, but he wants to just uh, take this opportunity to shut down another infrastructure project uh, related to fossil fuels. And um, as the Detroit News notes in, in uh, their article uh, covering this, they say, like Inslee, Sanders did not specify how he would ensure adequate propane supply to the Upper Peninsula and other parts of Michigan if 
line five is shut down. So again, the Greens have no plan for this. They don't care about how energy is supplied to anyone. They just want to shut down fossil fuels, or at least they want to position themselves as, as radically anti-fossil fuels. Um, so I find this very horrible. Uh, Enbridge got a deal from the previous uh, administration in Michigan and from the legislature, and this is immediately in danger if someone uh, radical gets elected into office and uh, just can shut down your pipelines. And interestingly, the new government in Michigan said, oh, we will, we will look into the paperwork of the original like easement uh, in the 1960s or in the 19, 1950s, actually, and you know, we'll find something. So something to that, uh, um, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but, but that's the essence of what they said. We will find something to bring into court to challenge the whole operation of this. And they are apparently okay with just shutting down the propane supply to Michigan. And uh, so I find this is kind of a miracle, given all this, that the voters who brought Whitmer into office are still supplied with the energy they need. It's, it's just short of a miracle that all of these companies that are harassed and abused in this way uh, to make a perfectly safe pipeline even safer at their own expense um, and they will still deliver all all the energy Michigan needs. Did you, did you guys talk last week about the Con Ed blackouts? No. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, we should uh, we should definitely cover that story at some point. I mean, you're just short short version is you're having blackouts in New York City that I think are clearly connected to these anti fossil fuel policies, both development policies and infrastructure policies, and it's just there's no awareness of this just just to put this into context just think about the 1970s so in the 1970s there was an arab oil embargo uh, particularly in 1973 and it it's not actually true that that caused the whole problem but that was connected to a problem of having huge supply interruptions of oil based fuels to people and the the thing people associate it with is gas lines. Like you could, there are these huge lines at the gas station and people could only go to gas stations on certain days and just huge amounts of, of life was shut down. And just, you know, one of the worst economic periods in American history. And this is one reason why in terms of national security, people are rightly concerned about disruptions to oil supply, even in Iran right now, people are recognizing that. And yet we are talking about voluntary disruption to oil supply, that we want to willingly make it hard or impossible to transport oil from where it is to where it's needed. And this, is, this is the opposite of a competitive approach of technologies, because a competitive approach would be, well, yeah, I think we have something better. We have something that can, with lower emissions, generate just as much or more energy at, at low if not lower prices and so we're going to build that infrastructure and then at a certain point the pipelines won't be necessary and maybe even the people who invest in the pipelines will take a bath because they were overly optimistic about the pipelines like that would be that would be totally fine and that would be a good kind of approach but instead it's saying we're promising that we're going to replace the value of the pipelines we've never come close to doing that i mean we're you know essentially we talked about uh, Greta Thunberg's, however you pronounce her name, is like boat 
in terms of just our alternatives, our horrible alternatives that are much lower quality and, and much higher cost. But we're going to get rid of of the of today's leading competitor and, and in some sense only competitor. And we're going to destroy that. And then and then we're going to outcompete it or at least outcompete uh, what's left, although they don't even know they're all of their projects require oil uh, to build among other things. Uh, it's really, really remarkable how much with the, the Democrat candidates, this is just this idea of keep it in the ground and, and stop the existing system has become a focus. And with less and less uh, pretense that, well, no, we're going to, we really are going to, like, we can create a system that can outcompete the 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 current system. And, and what, I think one real possibility, if these guys get elected is that you'll have things much worse than than even the blackouts in New York and you'll just have massive supply disruptions and then it, I think it, there will be a uh you know then you'll see huge suffering I mean and really and people dying and and I really do not want this to happen but you'll see that and then I think there will be some recognition of some perspective on the green movement and what they call like climate crisis. Like there will be, no, there will be an energy crisis and an industry crisis and a life crisis and people will see what that's uh, like. And I really do not want it to get there. So part of our job is to, is to explain to people how the system works so that they are uh, afraid of that and can avoid it without it happening. But I do think there's a real possibility that it will happen. If it does happen, uh, it's equally important that we have, we can explain what has happened. Just as we can explain what might happen now, we can explain what has happened so that there's a better chance that people will take the lessons uh, from it. Because the further we are away from the 70s, the, the more people think, oh, that doesn't apply anymore. It wouldn't, there couldn't be this problem or oil doesn't matter as much. And like, no, oil matters. We use more oil now than we did back then. Oil matters uh, more than just about everything. Don, what's your next story? Well, throughout this episode and through many of our episodes, one of the themes we keep coming back to is the way in which the green movement is hostile towards human flourishing. And it certainly in my experience discussing this with people, and I hear it many times when you're interviewed, Alex, that gets pushback. And now if you actually read them, particularly when they're talking to each other, I think it's very apparent that like their goal is not to promote human flourishing, but I think it's also apparent just from their policy goals. And so I wanted to highlight two more pieces where I think this really comes through. One in particular, we can be pretty brief on because we talked about it in conjunction with uh, Greta Thunberg not flying, but an article from Spiked Online um, called The War on Cheap Flights is highlighting a debate that's going on in the UK right now about taxing travel and particularly air travel on the grounds that like this is not green and which is true i mean <clears throat> every form of travel has a huge amount of impact whether it's obviously you know the use of fossil fuels but even just the infrastructure how much you know we what uh the roads it, even if you had you know we, we talked about in germany this idea of like electrifying all of the driving space uh which would be a ton of impact, even EVs, you know, that one of the biggest sources of air emissions from cars doesn't come from the exhaust, but the wear on the tires, which turns into um, emissions. 
and you cannot travel without impact. And part of what the Greens are arguing here is that it's precisely we should be traveling less and penalizing the people who travel the most. Then a article that just came out today in the Wall Street Journal, this is from Richard Tren, who's a co-founder of Africa Fighting Malaria, he is quite a powerful piece where he talks about how um, Target Malaria, which is a Gates Foundation-supported research effort, is trying to develop genetically modified sterile mosquitoes. And the goal is to reduce those populations because mosquitoes spread malaria, which is one of the deadliest diseases on Earth. And a coalition of 40 leading environmental and civil society organizations, he points out, is demanding the product be shut down immediately. And this shouldn't be a surprise because this movement has a long history of opposition to genetic technology. And the one example he cites is an example that's come up, I think, in some of the older episodes of Power Hour, which is the efforts by Greenpeace and others to stop golden rice, which could save up to 2 million people a year, mostly kids from early death and crippling blindness from vitamin A deficiency. And he points out that a petition signed by 144 Nobel laureates called them to uh, environmentalists to end these campaigns and actually accused Greenpeace, which I think is true of crimes against humanity. But then he goes on to talk about something that I'm not that familiar with, which is this new trend of agroecology. And it's a radical approach to food production that excludes modern farming techniques, including synthetic pesticides and fertilizers, modern hybrid seeds, and even mechanization. Agroecology, he says, explicitly promotes peasant agriculture and the superior wisdom of indigenous peoples. And now you might think, all right, you know, of course, every movement has its crazy ideas, but this has actually been officially adopted by the Food and Agricultural Organization, FAO of the United Nations, the UN Development Program, and the UN Environment Program. And FAO Steering Committee member Miguel Altieri, he describes the Green Revolution, which is the agricultural revolution that we usually credit with saving uh, over a billion lives. He called it a failed project that undermined the ability to address the root causes of hunger, whatever those are, and put global, I'm sure it's capitalism, uh, and put global food production under the control of a few, few transnational corporations bolstered by free trade agreements. And according to FEO's data, um, the author points out, though, the Green Revolution increased food-wide uh, supply by hundreds of calories per person each year, even when the global population more than doubled. And this was actually or a recent uh, study promoted by agroecologists acknowledged that their policies would reduce food production by 35% in Europe, and they nonetheless endorse it. And so, I mean, I think you see the green ideal. Don't eat, don't travel, don't protect yourself from disease, live or rather die like primitives. Another aspect to the, you know, to the green movement that I've been thinking of a lot lately is just how how anti-freedom it is in terms of not just you know there's no right to transform nature i think that's the key way in which is anti-freedom but also i mean related it's it's anti-free market as in anti-freedom of production and trade and if you think about agriculture 
So we think about, you know, we talk about the green revolution and notice it's called, it's, it's criticized in part because it's transnational corporations involved. But what, what that really means is that people free to produce in trade were able to discover and put into practice methods of, of food production that allow billions of people to get the food that they need uh, daily. And that's, a, that's an amazing achievement. That is, it's the achievement of you know, mil really millions of people who are coordinating uh, together, including what they're really doing is they're figuring out ways to uh, to make all to make a profit, they're figuring. You know, each farmer is trying to figure out. Okay, how can I, how can I produce food that's worth X to people, and then make it for less than X? And there's just this incredible process of all of these people pursuing profit, which, in, in, from a certain perspective, means pursuing a resource efficient way of of producing things, and that's what has led to this amazing abundance of food. But it's important that it's millions of people working in coordination and that they're free to discover the best methods and that they are also uh, left to fail when they're wrong. When you think about just how these issues are being discussed with the, with the, uh, you know, UNEP and these, you know, with the UN, I mean, the UN is, is supposed to be a, it doesn't have any exact authority, but it's a government type thing. So it's really a, this is a kind of government planning approach where we bring together a gang of experts and they say, let's say it's 100 people or 500 people or 10 people, whatever it is, it's some very small number of people who are saying, hey, we can dictate uh, how food should be produced. And so we have this uh, idea. And I'm sure and this idea is a horrible idea because it's an idea that's against transforming nature. So it's going to be it's going to be just destructive because it's just got this anti-production route to it. But also, how the hell are they going to know what? even if with the new method of like what global food production should look like and how it can actually be uh, efficient and, and profitable for billions of people. Like they, there's no way they can have any idea. So in practice, it's just, I just want to stress that we've, we've, with these global issues, we've gotten into the practice of just assuming that these government agencies and committees of experts can, uh, can not only it's okay to pick these green ideologies, but that they can they can somehow plan the global economy in some way, even if their idea was right. And so what we have is this combination of deliberately bad economic ideas, and then people trying to practice them in ways that are impossible to uh, to be truly efficient, as in having a, a few central people figuring it out for billions of people instead of leaving leaving the billions of people. Uh, to figure it out for themselves, including with the, the millions of people who are specialists in how to produce different kinds of agriculture for different uh, purposes, uh, for people of different kinds of means and preferences, given the uh, you know availability of different resources at a given time. That's that's the kind of thing that you know is that you need billions of free people to do. It's nobody can figure it out in advance. All right, let's do one more story. Stefan, pick a story, uh, and let's focus on brevity because we only have a little bit more time. Okay, so Ethiopia is saving the world by planting trees. And a shout out to our friend Kirk who pointed me to the story. So according to so e Ethiopia, you said Ethiopia, right? yes. Sorry for my pronunciation. Um, so according to the BBC, Ethiopia has probably broken the world record in trees planting by volunteers. 
by planting 350 million trees in one day. And this is part of the Green Legacy Initiative by Prime Minister Abi Ahmed, I hope I pronounced this correctly, uh, to counter the effects of deforestation and climate change. And I was curious about the priorities of this uh, government in Ethiopia, because uh, it's one of the poorest countries in the world. It has uh, over 100 million in population and a relatively low electrification rate. Uh, the average Ethiopian uses less than 10% of the energy the average American uses. And the nominal GDP is something about $800 per year. And so this is a very poor country. None of the you know, development metrics are anywhere near that of a developed country. And uh, although some progress has been present in recent years, this is very, there, there are huge challenges to this country, to say the least. So, and as the BBC reported, critics of Mr. Abi said he, he is using the campaign to distract the public from the challenges his government is facing, including ethnic conflicts, which have forced some 2.5 million people from their homes. And so I would say, yeah, okay, planting trees, we get it, that's a climate policy, but, you know, wasting manual labor on that by volunteers um, is not re going to cut it in Ethiopia. They, they have different problems on their plate. And the country is actually too poor to make any difference in climate policies or global emissions, right? So reforestation might be important down the road because recently there has been some deforestation, like uh, significant parts of the country have experienced drought and, and there has been... Uh, uh, deforestation going on. But the underlying uh, cause of all of this is, of course, the, the poverty uh, of Ethiopian citizens, right? So this is the first thing you need to fix <clears throat> because otherwise, A, you can't really, in the long term, change things like the forest area in your country. And two, no matter what the climate or weather pattern in your, in your locality will be by 2050 or 2100, if your population is poor, a lot of people will suffer under any climate. So this this can't be a priority of the government of, of such an impoverished country. Yeah, and I I think that's true, but very understated. Because I just think about, and this is even an understated analogy, but imagine that you have, uh, like, some politician says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the ghettos of America and I'm going to force everyone in the ghettos to spend, uh, you know, one day a week. Uh, you know, e each person in the ghetto has to spend, let's say, twelve hours uh, digging holes in the ground and filling them back up. And like that's, and you would say, oh, oh, oh. First of all, that's not probably the most valuable use of. That, that's not even the, not the most valuable use of their time, but they don't have time to spare. Like, these are people who, who need all the time they can get to produce, and they're already poor. So what's happening in Ethiopia? I mean, you're, you're taking poor people and you're taking away their time, and you're taking away their time to do something that is not even remotely their highest priority. So it has, and I don't know exactly what's, ha is this all voluntary? Is there some sort of compulsion? But I mean, if the government is leading it, there's some sort of, uh, compulsion one way or another. So either they're getting, like they're getting somebody is, some poor person is paying for them to do this directly, or they're basically just being enslaved to, you know, plant trees, but a big, well, that's basically just digging holes in the ground and then putting some dirt 
uh, around the trees. So it's just, I mean, you are just wasting the the time and money uh, of poor people who and making them even poorer. And this is so. This is the opposite of. It is the opposite of being pro-human, and it's the opposite of being pro-freedom. And it's part of why being pro-freedom is essential to being pro-human, because when you have freedom, then individual human beings can be pro-human primarily for themselves, and they can actually act in a way that they judge to be in their interest. Where as soon as you have anti-freedom, even if the government says that it's acting in people's interest, it has no means of uh, of knowing what's in everybody's uh, interest. And by the nature of the system, it's it's just going to sacrifice some people's resources and freedom for the alleged benefit of others, but doesn't even know what the benefit of those others is. So I just want to keep emphasizing that uh, we can't separate being pro-human from being pro-freedom. So we need we need government policies that that value human beings and that and really how they value human beings is that they leave individuals free to pursue you know life or to you know to live their lives and to have liberty and to you know create and pr- to produce and trade property and then to pursue happiness so human flourishing and human human freedom are inextricably linked Okay, that is our show for the day. If you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail for us, you can email them to Don. He will take care of them. So he's at don at industrialprogress.net. Also, if you are interested in having a speaker at your organization, you can email don at industrialprogress.net. Or if you are an organization that wants help with messaging, email don at don at industrialprogress.net, and he will take care of you. To get on our mailing list, you can just go to alexepsteinlist.com. Uh, also, that's that's probably the most important thing. Then you'll get notifications about Power Hour and everything else we are doing. And also just one final reminder to watch the new Green New Deal video. What's the deal with the Green New Deal? So check that out on YouTube. Please share it widely. I know that some of you who listen to this work at companies with thousands of people. And so... We, might as well share it with those thousands of people. I think there's a, a real chance that this could reach 10 million people, and that seems like a nice round number to shoot for, so help us get there. Okay, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, some of us at least will be back next week. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.